I, I do have a handout. I, I don't know if I made enough. So if we got a few extras lying around, anybody want? You don't have to have one. Made the handout mainly for those who who uh, didn't have a chance to read the chapter or finish it. For those who attempted to read it, it was a little longer than the other ones. I don't know why I got the long one, but yeah, I uh, we're we're not. I don't. Yeah, we uh, yeah. So there you go. I, I handout or whatever. I um, the main thing. I mean, there, it was a long chapter, so there was a lot of points made by Kenneth Bailey, and frankly, it's too many points. There are too many points to really digest all of them. So I really, I really just want to do one. And it's related to uh, a preliminary thought here. I, uh, this is uh, something that I actually wrote when I was on Vicarage. And um, I found it because um, I will read the Bible passage here in a second. But the Bible passage, Jesus speaks and people are angry. And the fundamental reason why they're angry is because he teaches them something new. And they just can't take it, even to the point of killing them. And uh, now this is related to the liturgy. And uh, as a vicar, being in a church where people were just asking a lot of questions about the liturgy, I think it's applicable to the situation that's happened in the, the, the Bible passage. So... Uh, I, I think there's probably spelling errors and all that. I didn't, pr- didn't proof this, so I'll read it and it'll make sense more than just you guys reading it and wondering why did I write it that way. I wonder if those who don't like the liturgy in its fullness really find it haunting, almost frightening. Perhaps the chanting out of tune aside, and Hollywood would make note of that. Regarding my vicarage, are the the supervising pastor always kind of chanted out of tune, so. Uh, perhaps the chanting, out of tune aside, seems a bit eerie so that the world is pushed off kilter. No one sings that way on the radio. No one sings like that in our church's past. Are said, almost to the point that it sounds like some foreign entity is invading their world. And I say, of course, because God is invading their world with all his frightfulness by changing their lives through his presence and his word and sacraments. The same must be for the incense, where that new smell is so unique that it scares the smeller. That's not mom's apple pie or grandma's banana bread in the oven. Is a statement that one might think, although no one really says it. Those smells, apple pie and banana bread, are safe and sound, but incense is not. It's peculiar, different. One one might want to say odd, and people really don't like oddity, peculiarity, or difference. So for what it's worth, when we encounter those who withhold money because of the chanting or leave because of the incense, perhaps we're right on... We're on the right track because God is forming them in such a way that they are no longer the person they once were. It's a painful change because the Christian life is painful. It's laid down in blood and suffering. The pain and suffering confronts our comforts and bids us to see things differently, to see things according to Jesus. And so let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Uh, We've got an extra Bible here. got extra Bibles. We have extra Bibles in, in the, the place where no one's sitting. I don't know. Luke chapter 4, and uh, 
I know the chapter started at uh, verse 16, but I would like to start at verse 14. In Je- okay, so let's set up the reading. Jesus was baptized, sent out into the desert to be tempted by Satan, and now he's coming back. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophets of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, I'm going to translate verse 22 a little differently than what's in the Bible in front of you, and we'll explain to that in a second. And all spoke against him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. When we have heard you... What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Seraphath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay. Um, oftentimes, I don't, you know, to be honest, I, I think we read this whole section in the church here. Sometimes we, I, I feel like maybe we stop it short. But, all right, so what's going on here? Um, reports and rumors. I started at verse 14 because, um, you know, anybody who comes to their hometown, everybody knows... I grew up in Wausau, Wisconsin. I think everyone knows that, right? Well, I haven't been back to Wausau since I was a high school kid. I mean, you know, for an extended period of time. And oftentimes when I run into people that I have not seen since then, their impression of me is, well, I'm still like a high school kid, right? I mean, you know. I... So, you know, one of the things that's happening to Jesus now is that people think they know who he is, okay? But if we remember, you know, what's happened in the Gospel of Luke, obviously we have this wonderful nativity scene, then we have Jesus in the temple, 
and and then he goes back home, lives, you know, whatever, twenty some odd years, and then he's baptized, sent out in the de- desert, and then comes. So one has to ask, what is the report? Now the word report comes from the word famous or fame. So there is like this famous thing that's going out about Jesus, and you have to wonder what is being said. If you know, your hometown, right? I mean, hey, this is one of ours. And whatever is said is probably going to be a reflection on who? Them, right? Hey, we were such a great hometown to grow up in. Look at, look at what came out of us. Obviously, if we read the entire, you know, we just read it, we realize that's not what's happening with Jesus' perspective. But Kenneth Bailey, so a report goes out, you know, and if we're listening to the story of Jesus for the first time, our report, you know, so let's, let's pretend that we don't, uh, by the way, the Gospel of Luke uh, is written mainly for a Greek audience, not a, a Hebrew audience. So th- there's, there's not a presumption that the, the listener has all this wonderful uh, Old Testament background. So the report oftentimes needs to be just restricted to the story of the Gospel of Luke. I, th- I think that's a fair argument. So in the circumstance, did people hear about his temptation in the wilderness? His overcoming Satan? Did, did this report about this baptism, which was a very public event, and a, you know, this spirit or the dove coming down, has that been reported? Whatever the report is, there is a fundamental flaw in the community's understanding of who Jesus is. Um, But whatever it was, it was popular enough that they said, hey, Jesus, thanks for coming back to your hometown. Can you speak in the synagogue? Um, They, you know, and... For those who, who didn't read it, Kenneth Bailey brings this, this point up is that he, he thinks that they're asking Jesus basically because he's a hometown kid made well and he's going to basically reaffirm that they're just a great, great place to be. Kenneth Bailey also brings up this notion that uh, Nazareth is in a, a mainly Gentile area. And in order for that place to be uh, kind of reclaimed for Israel, people intentionally moved into a Gentile area to reclaim it for Israel. Nobody knows any kind of current history that's still happening. So these people are coming to Nazareth with a very specific, like, you're not moving there because of the, you know, the springs. You know, you're moving there because you have a very God-given uh, right to live there, and you're part of this kind of God, cosmic plan to reclaim the nation of Israel, or, or the land of Israel. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of move there. It's kind of hardcore in a sense. You know, I mean, you're moving back there for. So. Um, Given that, hometown boy makes good. He's famous. People are talking about him. He's going to come back and tell us, good job, people. Stick with it. 
So what they heard about Jesus and who the real Jesus, so the Jesus they heard about, the famous Jesus and the Jesus in their midst, there's a, there's a big dichotomy between the two. So who is this Jesus? You know, would he fire the people up according to their beliefs? This belief that we're here among, amongst the Gentiles so that they will um, basically be our servants. We're going to get justice. We're the persecuted people. We're the poor people. And God is going to make wrongs right. And then, you know, would he affirm their local beliefs? This is our way of life. And, and you're, you know, you're here to tell us what we want to hear. So before Jesus speaks, you've got to ask yourself, does he know the reports that they're listening to? And I would say, yeah, right? I mean, he's a hometown boy. He knows this audience very well. And he knows what they need, which is very different than what they want. So how does, how does this work? Jesus works the Bible. Um, I closed my Bible. Um, I had too much stuff in here. All right, Luke chapter 4. He quotes a, a couple verses from Luke, uh, Isaiah 61 and then Isaiah 58, verse 6. It's kind of thrown in the middle there. But, so this idea is that he's given the scroll of Isaiah and he finds this, these Bible verses. These Bible verses are important to the people here in Nazareth because... It affirms what they believe to be true. So uh, maybe we should just turn to it real quick, because um, Isaiah 61 is the first. The first two verses are exactly what Jesus read. Uh, you know, essentially, there's a few differences, but but what Jesus does is um, he kind of leaves something out. Yeah, he changes the word to, uh, so they're listening, and he interjects something. I think that would be, yeah, leaving out an interject. I'm ahead of the game, but that's fine. That's no big deal. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. That looks all very, you know, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hey, that, that sounds just what Jesus read. Stops there, though, and then rather than saying the day of vengeance and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, the people in Nazareth are saying God's going to come here. We are mourning, and God's going to take vengeance for us to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, Yada, yada, yada. Go down to verse 5. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. This is the meat and potatoes of the people of Nazareth. There are strangers in their midst. Those people are strangers, the Gentiles. They're claiming what's rightfully theirs. They're the strangers. They're the foreigners. And they are going to tend my flocks. They're going to be my plowmen. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. 
and you shall eat the wealth of nations. It, it's kind of a uh, you know health and wealth understanding. We're doing this, and God is going to bless us. Well, Jesus stops there. He doesn't keep reading. I mean, everybody here, I mean, everybody in, in, the, in the circumstances is waiting for this to be said because th- this, is, this is why we read this Bible section. Not for the first two verses, but for the last few here. And, and you can actually go all the way to verse 11, but we're not going to. I mean, it's, it's um, you don't need to. But what's interesting is, before we get to that, Jesus says to these people, the Spirit of the Lord isn't on you people, but on me. And when he does that, he claims himself to be the Messiah. The salvation of Israel is not going to be found in these people doing these acts, reclaiming the nation or the the land of Israel. But the salvation of Israel will actually be found not in the land, not in their, their works, but in, in Jesus. This is a, uh, obviously this is a very truthful claim, because we all know this, we all believe this about Jesus. But given their circumstances, this is a very arrogant thing to say. And this is where the water begins to boil. Because right now, you know, it, it, they first hear this, they'll be like, well, is, does he really mean that? Well, you know, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, this is our hometown hero. But, you know, he's going to have to kind of massage the the message here. This is kind of offensive to hear this. Yeah, Rachel. I'm curious, like, yeah, right. That's a good question. Now, there's two theories. One was, um, one is that they're actually, like, we have a lectionary, you know, we follow a, a list of readings. They also had one back then. Now, the documents, though, are a little older than Jesus' time, but you know, it's presumed that, you know, it wasn't, like, made in, like, five years and it's used all over. It, it yeah, kind of had a history. Right, so then you probably had to share these amongst the uh, synagogues. Now, Nazareth, being a small town, probably didn't have the whole nine yards. Again, that's a presumption. You know, a larger town probably had, the you know, the whole Old Testament. They, you know, they didn't need to share, probably. But, um... So, yeah, so whether it was just happened to be the copy that they had and they gave to him, I mean, this is what they had, he gave and then he found it, or if it was an appointed reading that he was going to read anyways, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, but he, Did they know that they could recognize him? Yeah, right, that's the presumption, yep. Okay. Yeah, and the, um, the, what Kenneth Bailey says is that, um, him going to that section, you know, whether, you know, we don't know, if, like, hey, I'm going to read from this Bible section now. Like, does he announce it or does he just start reading? Don't know exactly. But Kenneth Bailey makes the assumption that um, when he starts reading, everybody knows why he's reading this or, what, you know, he, they, they know it. Yeah. Um, good question, though. And thank you for asking. Because, uh, it was a long chapter, and, and uh, there's a lot to be said. So if I move too quickly, just, yeah, just ask a question. So, um, so Jesus says, the, you know, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am the Messiah. Now, for those re, you know, listening to the Gospel of Luke, we should already know that, right, because of the baptism, right? The Spirit is upon him, rests upon him. 
So now we're just wondering what kind of report is going out. You know, it's just it's just this fundamental kind of disconnect. So yeah, to make a claim without being actually ordained or, or you know being uh, anointed is blasphemy. So you know what you do with people who blaspheme, right? Yeah, yeah, stone them. So when they take them out to the edge of the hill, they're not just like you know it's not like the bar. Uh, the oh boy, what's the guy at the bar that kicks people out? What do you call those people? Bouncer. bouncer thank you. It's not the bouncer just throwing the guy out. I mean, they're taking Jesus to the edge of the hill to throw him down. And if he doesn't die from the fall, he's easy picking so they can they can throw stones at him and stone him. I mean, they are not joking around here, okay? So, in addition, when Jesus picks up the text that ends with retribution, Israel who suffered... You know, will be served by those who persecute him. This is what people are thinking, but Jesus turns it upside down, leaves out the rest of verse 2, verses 5 through 11, and then interjects something from Isaiah 58, 6. You know, we won't turn to that, but Isaiah 58, 6, if you read it, all the, the, the language around there has to do with false and true fasting. So there's a group of people who are really following in the way of the Lord, and then those are the people who just look like they are. So that no, that's in the middle. Oh, so I'm sorry. Yeah, Luke chapter four, uh, eighteen and nineteen. It's mainly Isaiah sixty-one one and two, but there is a part of Isaiah fifty-eight six interjected in the middle of it. Now this goes back to Rachel's question. If you open up a scroll, have you ever seen a gone to a Jewish synagogue, seen a scroll? That would probably be like one turn of one hand. Actually, it'd be this way. Um, and he could easily he could easily read all that stuff together. Now, somebody would say, "Well, you can't just you just can't read the Bible out of order." Well, back in those days, you did. It's it's not a huge deal um, because the um, the crafting of the teaching is dependent upon the story of the, of the scripture, and it wouldn't be uncommon to pick different passages to kind of craft the teaching. Again, too, you know, this is an oral society. They're used to listening. Very different than our, our current situation here. So they would listen to large passages, and Isaiah 61 is not that, um, it's not as if it's disconnected from Isaiah 58. They're all part of the same uh, thought. So, so when Jesus does that, though, again, presuming that they know their Bible, and so that he's, they say, well, wait, wait, why is he pulling something in from Isaiah 58? Wait, is he talking about, is he, is he saying that we're not, we're the false fasters or the, or the true fasters? Um, do we have a true piety or a false piety? Yeah. Right. Yeah, Hebrew. Okay, so the scriptures are uh, uh, written in Hebrew. Their normal language is Aramaic. Now, it's not drastically different, but it is different. So what would happen is the the reader would read the Hebrew, and you would have you would stop translator in Aramaic, 
read Hebrew, translated in Aramaic. And the, and the theory was, the reason why Jesus could interject a verse from Isaiah 58, 6 is because while the tr- translation's happening in Aramaic, he can find it. And that, there was a general rule saying you could interject another text as long as you didn't spend five, you know, five minutes finding it. It, could be, it just it would have to be, that's as much time you were able to give to find the new section. Um, and so that's why Kenneth Bailey, because that actual text from Isaiah 58, 6, there's other parts of scripture or tradition that you could find it, but he's saying, well, these are the rules and this then fits the, the verse. I mean, that's kind of an interesting, like Jan says, it's a very interesting point of how people worked back then. So now uh, these people are listening, and they have this question to answer. Is Jesus affirming our beliefs, or is he, is he challenging us? Because we've understood these texts as all the great things we're going to receive, but now Jesus is making it sound like we got to, What? We got to give? Yeah. So now the water is boiling now. I mean, people are so heaping coals upon their heads. That's what I, I wrote down there. So now, so people are expecting now this guy's got to this guy's got to change his tune real quick here. But he hands back the scroll. He sits down, and the people are shocked. Isn't isn't this Joseph's son? He grew up here. He knows why we're living here and our way of life. What is his problem? So verse 22, and this is just a point that I think is helpful for us. To, uh, speaking for against him, Kenneth Bailey talks about the dative case in Greek. Pretty snoozer section right there. <laughs> but the way the translate, you can translate the Greek in terms of for or against him and it would it just kind of makes logical sense for him rather I mean against him rather than for him. Now they usually put it in the positive, and then when Jesus speaks, they change into the negative. But as we kind of are looking here now, the water is boiling, and, and I mean it's beginning to boil. It's boiling, and then it will explode. Just seems so. All spoke against him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, "Is this not Joseph's son?" Why in the world would people speak against him at gracious words? Words of mercy. Not allowed to give them. Yeah, so there's that point about the Messiah. Why else would people be upset at words of mercy? Oof. Let's kind of play that out a little bit more. Was that was that you're going to say, Nancy? Yeah, they they want they want restitution. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So Jesus is saying, all those people that you're comfortable keeping on the outside, all those people you're comfortable looking down upon, those are the ones you show mercy to. So, um, he's destroying their categories. I mean, Jesus is just obliterating the way their society is built. 
Society built back then is, uh, I mean, we're off on a tangent, but this is very important, I think, because we all like to have people in boxes. Makes life manageable. You know, I mean, if, if I, even if it's a big box, at least I know how to avoid it or if I need to push it a little bit. But Jesus is, is just obliterating those. And now their, their walls and their society are just, just they, they've lost their bearings now. But, you know, what's the one bearing in their midst? It's not the categories anymore. It's, it's Jesus. Uh, yeah, he kicks it up a notch. Just so, you, yeah, just just want to make sure everyone's clear here. Right. Now, this is uh, just you know the the biblical stories to which Jesus uses are the story of Elijah and Elisha. Now, Jesus, uh, you know, examples of faith. He doesn't use Abraham. Moses, David, he doesn't use Elijah or Elisha, although, although those stories are, are related to them. He uses this widow from Sidon, which is a Gentile. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're not, it's not part of the nation of Israel. And then Naaman of Syria, who was in fact controlling Israel at the time in 2 Kings. The people they love to hate are now the people they need to emulate. Uh, it, yeah, and people just don't like to hear that. Carol. Right. Yeah, right. So the Jews, these, 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 uh, the people of Nazareth, they moved there so they could displace these people. But Jesus is saying the very people you're displacing are the very people you need to become uh, one with. You know, it's it's a little hard for us in the United States to kind of think about it in those terms because we don't think that way, right? We're we're a nation of people from all over the place. However, um, you know, there's there's plenty of examples in our daily life where we like to keep people out of our midst. I I would let you guys figure that out, and the people that you're probably saying I know, pastor's not talking about those people, are the people that you're probably that I should be talking about. You know, you, you name it. I mean, whether it's skin color, just, just whatever. Skin color, ethnicity, sexual orientation, all that stuff are the, the people that Christ is, is dealing with. And what's interesting is, is that what Jesus is saying here, he's challenging them in a way that is going to change them at their fundamental core not saying that these, because one of the interesting things about these stories of Naaman and the widow is that those people changed in the story. In, in the story of Naaman is probably the most dramatic example. Naaman is a, a commander in the Syrian army. He has leprosy. Well, because they were occupying Israel, he had a Hebrew servant girl. And the servant girl had the, the wherewithal to say, why don't you go to the prophet's house? He can heal you. Well, he's at his last, I mean, he can't, I mean, he's, he's given up. There's nothing, no, you know, nobody can help him. He's like, okay, well, let's just do this. Well, Naaman doesn't go to the prophet's house. He goes to the, you know, this, uh, the ruler, kind of the, the, the underling of the Syrian nation. You know, they called him the king of Israel, but he wasn't the king in the conventional sense. 
And the king is like, whoa, I'm not getting in the middle of this. I mean, if you're going to go to the prophet, don't come to me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the one who takes, I'm not in this. You go deal with the prophet directly. Because Naaman is thinking, hey, I've got I to gotta work within the categories. I've got to go to the king, show proper respect, then go to the prophet. And what the king of Israel is saying, whoa, 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 God is the king, and this is his prophet. I'm not really involved in this. In fact, if I get involved, man, I'm going to, I might get struck dead. <laughs> so, so Naaman, it, it, through the, sto- the story, is a very proud, powerful person. And he slowly, his world slowly comes apart to the point where he's nothing. And Naaman, who has leprosy, is t- now, so he goes to uh, Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out. He just sends the servant, hey, just go, just tell this guy to go uh, dip seven times in the Jordan River. Well, Naaman is furious. He's totally shamed by this prophet. How dare he not come out and face me? You know, what's his deal? So he leaves. He's like, forget this. But thankfully, the servants say, oh, we've made this whole trip. Let's just, let's just, what does it hurt to do this? And so he does it, and his leprosy is cleaned. So he, I mean, so the, this thinking is, is that when Jesus is talking to the people of Nazareth, that we have to, you know, that we're emulating these foreigners, these Gentiles. What we have to remember is that these people that they're supposed to emulate have gone through the transformation that Jesus is, in fact, trying to give them. So as, as we think about our own personal prejudices against whether it be, you know, of race, nationality, sexual orientation, all that stuff, these people that we are, are bid to show mercy are going through the transformation that Christ wants for them too. And what, what Christ is doing to the people of Nazareth is saying that you are, you are going to be the vehicles which God will work to institute this change but the change will be kind of fundamental I mean, it will, it's, it's a fundamental difference between what the people of Nazareth thought and what Jesus is teaching Jan yeah it's muddy you're, you're not drinking out of it Well, I mean, it's different levels at different times of the year, and yeah, so, I mean, it's a... Uh, it's, it's not any different than, well, never mind. It's like the, I mean, the Fox River kind of looks clean, but, yeah. Yeah, I was going to, I don't know. How many people have actually seen the DePage? It's, it's probably a little worse than the Fox, so. All right, yeah, okay. Yeah, imagine that one. Anyways, okay, well, so this, this, I mean, so now, so this is all like coming to a head now, and the, the pot has exploded. I mean, Jesus has just simply offended everybody there. To the point now that they, they accuse him of blasphemy, and they want to they wanna kill him. So this, this, I mean, I think uh, from, oh, I forgot to, oh, yeah, page 166. In every culture, the message of the gospel is in constant danger of being compromised.
by the value system that supports that culture and its goals. The stranger in that culture can instinctively identify those points of surrender and call the community back to a pure and more authentic faith. But such infusions of new life are usually resented and resisted. This very pattern of hostility emerges in this story, and there's more. So, I mean, this is something within the United States that we, as a country, really, I think, need to think about because um, you go back a couple generations, not maybe just even one, I mean, the, the notion that America is God's chosen nation, very prevalent, especially in, in politics, um, uh, political speeches. You know, a lot of us kind of find that hard, right, because, you know, uh, uh, there's so much animosity towards Christianity in kind of the public square. Um, but there is and there isn't. There's animosity for real Christianity, but there is open arms for a watered-down Christianity. One that doesn't what? Offend. And... Uh, and so the thing is, though, is we're really comfortable with that kind of offending going on, but when it comes then on, on us, well, then we get offended, then we don't like that. Um, so I think yeah, John Kleinig, he, had, he has a nice story um, about how he, I don't know if he shared it here one time, but he had a student of his who studied in America, and, and uh, he was an ab- aboriginal student. And never been to the United States, came to the United States, went back, and John Clank said, well, how was your studies? How was America? And the, the boy, the young man was, um, there's nothing sacred. And he goes on to give this great cultural critique of American Christianity. How basically Christianity is um, very accommodating to the value system. We don't, we, you know, with the way we worship mimics a lot of the things in the culture, and he—I I mean, it, it's a very, a very fascinating little story that he likes to tell, and it really kind of cuts to the core of who who we think we are as as, as American Christians. Well, he's an Aboriginal Christian. No, but I meant when he's Lutheran. Oh, when he came here, uh, it was both. Yeah, I mean, he was studying at a university, um, a, uh, a, a postgraduate university, uh, well, it was Presbyterian in name, but it wasn't highly Presbyterian even in that. So, uh, but I, don't, I think American Christianity influences all denominations, and uh, I, I, American Christianity I don't think is really great, but um, because we're so, and what, I mean, one of the things here at St. John that we did do, and I, I know that was met with some resistance, but I'm a big supporter of it, is not having the American flag in the sanctuary, because this is the land of all nations. When we enter into the nave, it is not the land of America. That's not anti-American, that's pro-church. That's pro-universal church, where whoever comes into this sanctuary belongs there, there's no sign of division. Yeah, anyways, okay. 
So I'm a big supporter of that. I, I like to keep the American flag out of the nave. All right, especially out of the sanctuary. It's often right next to the altar. That really bothers me. I, just, I can't stand that. I, I am up. That is bad. Okay, there we go. When they put the American flag right next to the altar, I, I just think about it in terms of, like, I mean, America has a sketchy past in, in military history, right? We've done a lot of good. We've also done a lot of bad. And, but uh, the, the places where we've done a lot of bad, there's actually real Christians. And if they come into a place where they feel like they're going to be safe and welcomed, and all of a sudden they see the, the, the flag of America, you know, that's... that's Anyways, Carol. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I think. I think the the significance is goes back to the fundamental. Like, these are the people who know Jesus the theoretically the most or the best. Not only from a spiritual perspective, but also on a personal perspective. So this is like the place where they should know Jesus the best, but in fact they know him the least. So this goes now, when we come to church, are we coming to church so that we feel good and have our faith affirmed? Or are we coming to church to hear the truth and be faithful? Hearing the truth sometimes, what? Hurts. Being faithful sometimes means suffering. So when we come and we hear teaching that sounds different than what we've heard our entire life, and we are challenged to the core, how do we react to that? How are we being faithful to that teaching? Do we reject it and say, that's not what I learned in confirmation? Or do we say, maybe I have to change. Maybe God is doing something with me today. Um, Because those of us who have been lifelong Lutherans and have been very comfortable in our faith, challenged, you know, a little bit, but come to the, like, rock to the core Um, that, that's, that's what's happening right now. And these, so someone who's spent their entire life as a Lutheran and then have been told something that it seems to be so foreign to their Lutheran faith, and they, in fact, are wondering, this can't be Lutheran because this is not what I learned. When, in fact, it actually is Lutheran. I mean, obviously, Lutheran is not the most important thing. Christ, you know, Jesus is the most important. But um, you get what I'm saying. So... So when that happens, you know, does someone say, do we, we act like the, the, the synagogue in Nazareth and, and we want to just run the teacher out of town? Or are we going to listen, receive that word, have it dwell in us, and thus change our life? I mean, th- I mean so if we kind of take a step back from what Jesus is saying, I mean, Jesus is not saying anything too extraordinary. I mean, he's saying, show mercy. I mean, that's not like a that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That's why that's why it's so amazing that the people are, are 
are looking against him for words of mercy. But, I mean, that's happened many times. I mean, you know, I mean, this happens here at St. John where, you know, someone says, well, I didn't, I didn't learn that when I was in confirmation. I've had people say that. And, and you know, I, I don't I do. I wasn't raised Lutheran. I, I, this is another thing about this quote here is that we should actually see ourselves as strangers in our culture because our, that, that, that's from a, a sociological perspective. America, like, because we're primary Christian, we're prim, primarily Christians, not Americans. And, and that's just, that's not, again, that's not anti-American. I mean, I, I love America. In fact, I, yeah, I mean, there's a documentary that came out, Portland to Portland. You should watch it. It's, it's, a, it's very interesting because it's like really great synopsis of America. But anyways, I, I love it. But, um, the, the point is, is that we're primary Christians, and, and being Christians will rub up against America because we'll rub up against every culture, no matter where we are. What Jesus is also saying, though, is that we can't see our, the church as primarily as a cultural ident- entity, but primarily as a Jesus entity. I mean, Jesus in our midst. And we, 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 oh, this goes to the other aspect of the chapter, which is really just what Pastor Brzezik is teaching on Sunday, orbiting ourselves around Christ. Um, that's, that's our frame of reference, not our, our cultural categories. Great, great example is Bishop Litkin. He uh, was here for Reformation time. And, he, you know, he wanted to talk about Reformation with me. And he found it very peculiar. Yeah, I know we have to stop here. But um, the, uh, it's very peculiar. And, Mary, if you want to bring it, you can have the Wheaton College well, you probably want to hear this. Um, anyways, they, they can bring the kids in. It's, just, it's okay to have the noisy kids in here. Because um, they got to go to chapel. What was interesting was his critique of Reformation celebration here is, is that he said, you know, we in, the Soviet, or in Russia don't celebrate Reformation history in the way you guys do here because mainly we're not, what? Well, we're not Reformed, but we're also what? Think national entity, uh, identity. We're not German. <laughs> he goes, he, he says, um, I mean, it, it, we have a special service for it because it's on our church calendar, but, you know, all this, you know, all the stuff that's happening around Reformation history, we, we just don't do that because we're not German. He has no frame of reference. That's not part of their church tradition. Well, I was just going to say, so this is something here as a Missouri. So I asked him, so how does that work in Russia? And he goes, well, the most important Reformation day for them is not October 31st, but June 25th. And now a million-dollar prize for anybody who knows that. What is that? It's, well, it's John the Baptist Day, but it's the, it's the uh, summer or winter. Or summer no, no, you're close, close. <laughs> it's the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Oh. Total nerd alert, I know, but he says that's, that's a, actually, now for those of us who don't know what the Augsburg Confession, that is the document that was presented to the Emperor Charles and the Roman Catholic Church saying, we Lutherans are in fact walking in the line of church history and scripture, and this is what we believe, I mean at that time they weren't called Lutherans, but. So they don't sing a mighty fortress written by the church. Well, I, 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 they sing a mighty fortress, I think, but I, I'm not sure if it's actually on Reformation history or if they, in fact, do it on the. But that's you know they do have that within their church tradition. 
So, I mean, th- this is the great thing of having, like, Bishop Licken in our midst and having any other, maybe, Christians who don't have the kind of the German Missouri Senate history. Um, like, I mean, I would love to have the Archbishop of, of Riga come in our midst because this is a, a Lutheran church that's historical, has been around for since, you know, 1500s. And um, yeah, they were they were dealt a big blow, and the Soviet Union came in. But they they stood they kind of withstood the the test of time, and they're. And they're but the but the Riga Church and the American Latin Lutheran Church don't play well together. Well, yeah, that's a different issue. But but the whole point was is you know like having these people in our midst gives us a, a a more a larger view of what the church can be, and then hopefully inspires us to live differently, even you know in this cultural perspective. Um, yeah, uh, we got to go. Yeah, right. So they got a whole different problem going on too. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. That's why. Uh, what a great thing is is if you have a bunch of strangers come in play together, what you realize is you 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 see other people's problems and then you see your own problems and then as you spend enough time together, hopefully you all work together on your problems. But okay, let's pray and we'll go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Oh, yeah, the following chapter 13. Yeah. Yeah, we're working up to when Advent starts, we'll, we'll start those first four chapters on the birth of Jesus. So it'll be very festive. But we're not meeting the Friday after Thanksgiving. So next week will be our last one until after Thanksgiving.